Welcome to the Retire Right Podcast with Larry Heller. You deserve complete financial advice. There's no acceptable alternative if you want a plan to live well and on your terms. Complete financial advice equals complete peace of mind. Now, let's get into this week's podcast episode. Hello and welcome to Retire Right, episode 30 with Larry Heller from Heller Wealth Management. Today, Larry has a special guest with him, uh, so I'm excited to get rolling. His guest is Kevin Condon. Kevin is a partner in the law firm of Grenier, Humes, and Nolan, LLP. Kevin Condon has been practicing law since 1992, and since 1998, Kevin has really focused his practice on elder law, estate, and long-term care planning, including counseling clients of all economic classes on asset preservation strategies and Medicaid eligibility rules. Larry, how are you today? I'm doing terrific, Eric. Thank you. And I know you got Kevin with you. Kevin, are you there? I I am. Fantastic. Larry, take it away. What, What are we talking about today? So today we're going to be talking about the common Medicaid myths and misconceptions. All right. um, before Kevin and I get into this, let me kind of just give you a little bit of background about how Kevin and I uh, met. So I think, Kevin, it's about maybe 12, 15 years ago. Kevin and I have the same office in the same, um, same offices in the same building. Mm. And I needed some help with my mom in Medicaid planning and went to a larger firm and I was not happy with kind of the service that they were doing. So I went and looked up Kevin and, you know, Kevin was extremely helpful and knowledgeable. And ever since then, I think we have a lot of clients now, common clients together. And it's great, you know. Kevin and as he's got his partner Michael, who also does estate planning, Michael Nolan, who's spoken on one of our other podcasts. They have an office out here in Melville, and then an office in New York City. So that works nicely for our clients that uh, that live in New York City and and the ones that live out here on Long Island. That's great. So uh, so it's worked out it's worked out really well. And you know, Kevin and both Michael have a very unique uh, you say unique type of way of working. I've worked with a lot of different state attorneys for a long time, and a lot of them are very knowledgeable, technical, technically competent. However, they can't always relate to the clients. So uh, so Kevin does a very nice job and a very patient job of explaining some of the technical concepts to the client so they understand it so they understand what kind of decisions they were they were they can make fantastic so uh i would highly recommend recommend both kevin and his partner michael they've done a great great job for many of my clients all right where do we start so let's start with the the common medicaid myths and misconceptions so kevin why don't you uh start it off with uh, with number one sure so just by way of background I, i meet with clients every day and I meet with families every day and many times we're talking about asset protection planning or Medicaid eligibility and these are some of the misconceptions that I've sort of compiled over the years and the first one has to do with confusion as between Medicare and Medicaid. Oftentimes I have clients that come in and they tell me that they don't need Medicaid because they have Medicare. Um, it's also known as the, the Medicare myth, this basic misunderstanding that Medicare is going to provide for long-term care in a nursing home or prolonged assistance in, in the home of, of the client. And that's just not the, the case. Hmm. Medicare and Medicaid were essentially created at the same time in about 1964, but they really serve very different populations. 
Medicare was intended as a national health insurance program for people that had paid into the system for so many years and so many quarters. And then ordinarily at age 65, they're eligible for hospital insurance, physician services, now prescription drug coverage. Medicaid, on the other hand, is intended for people with little or no assets, also a national health insurance program. But the big difference between the two, actually there's several big differences between the two, but the, the big differences are Medicare is available to you without regard to assets and income. And Medicaid has a financial means test. They require that your income is below a certain threshold and your assets are below a certain threshold in order to qualify. And then, of course, the other distinction between the two programs or prominent distinction between the two programs is what Medicare does not cover. Medicare doesn't cover home care. Medicare doesn't cover nursing home care. And that's the, the biggest problem or, or issue that clients have is that they're under the impression that Medicare is going to cover nursing home care, and it simply doesn't. Mm -hmm. So they're left then to privately pay for care, or they have to plan to become Medicaid eligible without any advanced planning. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. a great breakdown between between the two of them. I mean, we see many, many clients that come in, come in the door, and they're, they're not really even thinking about Medicaid. They've never even, you know, thought about that. And maybe now some of their parents, they're seeing some of their parents and looking at the potential costs of what it would be for a long-term, you know, care or for, for nursing homes. And they're like, oh, you know, what else can I do that's all of a sudden not covered by Medicare when they find out that Medicare won't cover those type, those type costs. So, you get into some of the con you know conversations you know with with them, which you know, again kind of leads into maybe the second myth. But people don't really know that they may even be eligible, that they have too many sure. assets to qualify yeah. for, for you know for Medicaid. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, so Medic Medicaid's essentially divided into two different categories. There's Medicaid community care, and then there's Medicaid nursing home care, or what's known as chronic care. Most people are familiar with Medicaid nursing home care, and they don't know as much about home care services that are available through Medicaid. And New York happens to be a very generous state when it comes to Medicaid eligibility generally, and even more so for home care. For instance, you can qualify for Medicaid community care services, such as a personal care aid or a home health aid. Really, walking to my office in the month of August, for instance, if you had hundreds of thousands of dollars, you could literally qualify for Medicaid home care the very next month because there's no look back period. There's no asset transfer penalties with regard to home care. So you can literally transfer assets to an irrevocable trust. You could transfer assets to children and bring yourself down below the Medicaid eligibility thresholds and qualify for coverage the very next month. So that, so that coverage is only for having an aid come into the home. For Medicaid community care, correct. Medicaid community care. So there's no look, there's no five-year look there's back. There's no so-called five-year look back period with regard to Medicaid community care. In addition, married couples also have the additional benefit of being able to pass assets without penalty or consequence between one another. So many times I'll meet with one spouse, the quote, well spouse, 
comes into my office, tells me that, you know, their, their spouse, whether it be husband or wife, is in a rehab facility. They're going to need permanent placement in a nursing home for, you know, the extended future or the balance of their lives. And they want to know what they can do to protect their assets. In that particular case, even without prior planning, we can basically provide Medicaid eligibility for the, the applicant spouse, the spouse in the nursing facility, by simply transferring all of their joint assets from both spouses to the, quote, community spouse, and then having the community spouse sign what's known as a spousal refusal. A spousal refusal is effectively a divorce on paper, and it allows all the assets to be moved between spouses without consequence or penalty, and then the community spouse now owns everything, the applicant spouse has less than their 15,150 of assets, and they're able to then qualify for Medicaid. There's a risk of potential litigation against the refusing spouse, but in most counties in New York, the agencies are not terribly aggressive, and this planning has been around for as long as I've been practicing, and it works pretty well when there's been no prior planning involved. So, so therefore, you should, you know, do some planning, you know, right up front, even though you may think you have too many assets, it's always good to come in and speak to, you know, to, you know, to Kevin to see if some of these strategies, you know, will work. Yeah, a a absolutely. So, you know, you can't count on these rules always being in effect for, you know, the, the future. And then you can't always count on there being a spouse to pass assets too, of course. So, it always makes sense to plan in advance so that regardless of what happens to either spouse and when it might happen, that you've planned far enough in advance where those assets are fully protected. And that typically means planning, you know, five years or more ahead of time. We're mostly talking about New York state law. So for, for those listeners out there that are outside New York, please consult an attorney in your state, because the rules are ex um, dramatically different dramatically from state different. to state, even county to county, for for instance. So you know, I've got some friends and clients that live in, in in New Jersey, and one of the things that I've learned is New Jersey doesn't exclude an IRA in some of the planning, but New York, you know, New York does. Correct. Yeah, that that's absolutely correct. And and you know, this this second misconception is about having too many assets to qualify for Medicaid. And we you know, talked about transferring assets without penalty for home care and transfers of assets between spouses. There are also special exceptions for transferring assets to blind or disabled children, transferring the residence to a caregiver child. And then there are certain assets that don't count towards eligibility, like the, the residence is an exempt asset if you're receiving community care or if there's a spouse residing in it. In addition, IRAs, as Larry mentioned, are exempt in New York as long as they're in payout status. So they're treated as a stream of income rather than a countable resource. So when it comes to Medicaid eligibility and assets, the thresholds are rather low, but there's many ways to maneuver within that to get you below that threshold. All right, let's move on to, uh, to the next common Medicaid myth and misconceptions. I have my assets in a revocable trust, so I am protected. Yes. Yeah, so so I, I, I see that all the time. I have a lot of clients that you know live in New York. They're snowbirds. They have property in Florida. Many will have these trusts created in either New York or Florida. And these are revocable or living trusts. And they, Let me just explain the difference yeah. between a revocable and a irrevocable trust. For sure, it's just as, as, as it sounds. So a revocable <laughs> trust is a trust that 
is created by one or two persons typically, and they reserve the right to amend or revoke the trust. And they typically create this trust, fund it with their own personal assets, and then name themselves as trustees. So they're essentially just wearing a different hat and controlling their assets as trustees of their own revocable trust. An irrevocable trust is, again, created by one or two individuals. Typically, they transfer those assets of theirs to this irrevocable trust. But ordinarily, they do not serve as trustees. And the big distinction, of course, is they don't reserve or retain the right to revoke or modify the trust. So for Medicaid purposes, you know, we haven't talked about what the asset thresholds are for eligibility, but they're they're low. For a single individual, it's $15,150. And, you know, with regard to a revocable trust, if someone walks into my office, they tell me that they have a revocable trust, some are under the impression that they've somehow protected their, their assets. So they have the family home, they have certain bank accounts, CDs, brokerage accounts in this trust. All that trust is going to potentially do is avoid probate. It does nothing to protect their assets because Medicaid considers all those assets as theirs because they control that trust and they have the ability to use those assets and make those assets their own whenever they they wish. So in order to have appropriate asset protection planning, it really needs to be in an irrevocable trust because you can't have any strings attached so that you know, Medicaid will consider these as available assets. Yeah. So, so what we see sometimes, a lot of times, you know, setting up these irrevocable trusts with uh, the children to yeah. to help, you know, to help do some of this, to help do some of this planning. Co- co- correct. So almost always, you know, these these plans involve family members, typically children who serve as trustees, and most clients that come in have a good feeling about the plan and their their children being involved in the plan. Otherwise, uh, it doesn't go much further than that. So most most clients get a sense as to which of their children can serve as trustees and can be included as part of the plan. And then the parents working together with the children really are able to access the assets indirectly, which we'll come to later. Okay. Yeah. So speaking of children, you know, that, that, that brings us to an, our next misconception is, you know, I've added my children as joint owners, so I'm protected. Yeah. And, and that's similar to the revocable trust. So, you know, Medicaid considers all the assets in a revocable trust as available to the Medicaid applicant. And likewise, Medicaid will count all assets in a joint account as belonging to the applicant. In fact, there's a presumption that if there's a joint account between mother and son, for instance, that all the assets belong to the mother unless the mother is able to rebut that presumption. In many cases, kids are added to accounts for convenience purposes. You know, they get added to a checking account or to a savings account mainly to sometimes avoid probate, but mainly for assistance in paying the bills. And these same clients are under the impression that those assets or even half those assets might not be considered theirs for Medicaid purposes, but Medicaid will consider 100% of those assets as available to the the applicant. So if it was that simple, we wouldn't need elaborate trusts. You right, simply you just have add, a career there. <laughs> yeah, you, you'd simply just add kids to all the accounts and problem solved. So it, it doesn't really solve the problem whatsoever. Okay. Let's change costs a little bit and talk about some of the different, some of the other myths here. And, you know, gifts of 15000 uh, per child, which I guess is the annual eligible amount you're allowed yeah. to gift without paying taxes, 
will not affect my eligibility for Medicaid. And is that the case? Yeah. So um, you hear this time and time again. In fact, I just heard this Friday afternoon. I met with a client and uh, he was under the impression this was the son whose father was interested in setting up a, a trust. And he indicated that, well, we can still make gifts on an ongoing basis of, he was saying, 13000 per person per year. But now that annual exclusion amount is 15000 But Medicaid, so the $15,000 annual gift exclusion is an IRS tax concept. It has nothing to do with Medicaid whatsoever. Medicaid rules are such that if you transfer any assets, whether it be 1,000, 2,000, 10,000, if you gift any assets over a five-year time frame for Medicaid nursing home eligibility, they're going to add up those assets. So there's no free pass as to gifts in $15,000 increments or under. Basically, every dollar that's transferred, Medicaid will add those dollars up over a five-year period. They'll divide it by a regional nursing home care rate, and they'll say, listen, you gave away assets that could, could have been used to cover nursing home costs, and as a result, you're ineligible for, for coverage. So that 15000 per person exclusion Strictly a tax concept, which doesn't have any correlation to Medicaid whatsoever. Very, very interesting. You know, the, the next concept, you know, is a great conversation that I that I have with many clients. You know, most clients, you know, don't think they're ever going to have to go into a, a nursing home, and they're going to live forever and then pass <laughs> quiet pass quietly, and they don't really want to uh, address it. So they they basically say, I'm never going to go into a nursing home. So why do I need to become Medicaid, uh, Medicaid eligible? Yeah, so, so I, I hear this all the time. And these are clients that sometimes I'll meet with a client and we'll talk about estate planning and we'll talk about long-term care planning, irrevocable trusts, and they will say at the time that they're not prepared to go forward. And then only years later, when someone has suffered a stroke or had a serious health problem, do they come back and sort of revisit the planning options that we had discussed. And at that point, you know, some opportunities were potentially lost. So most clients come in and no one hopes to ever need nursing home care, obviously. But inevitably, people do. Statistically, individuals over the age of 65, 50% require some time in a nursing home. Average length of stay is a little over two and a quarter years. So Chances are that at some point, most clients that I'm meeting with, husband or wife, will need nursing care. And it's sometimes the kids that I'm meeting with, and they'll come in and they'll say, well, dad never thought he was going to need nursing care, or it was our goal to keep him at home as long as possible. And of course, that's an admirable goal, but not everyone can be maintained comfortably and safely in their their home. So there's nothing wrong with sort of planning with the potential need for nursing home care without sort of sacrificing total control and taking steps to sort of safeguard your your nest egg of, of assets because the potential's there. I mean, unfortunately, now with people getting older and people developing more cognitive issues, at some point you may need some stay in a nursing facility. No one has a crystal ball. So it's unfortunately, statistically, you know, a 50-50 shot at over age 65. So, you know, the time that you want to kind of do some of this planning is when you are well well and healthy and that's because there's also this five-year this five-year look-back rule. Do, yeah. you, do you see a certain age that 
when people the sweet spot, the sweet spot when people kind of say, okay, I'm okay with transferring the money yeah. out and doing some of these planning. So is there an age? When you yeah. Do? So I get that question all the time. So it seems almost cruel to suggest that you retire at age 65 and you're being told by some attorney an initial meeting to offload your assets to an irrevocable <laughs> trust. You know, you just retire and there you are being told to give your assets and control over to the kids. And certainly at 65, that's on the younger side. I would say, you know, early to, to mid 70s is sort of an appropriate time to consider this type of planning. And for the most part, you can put this planning in place and you're not sort of giving up as much control as you might think because there's a lot of different sort of features you can have where you give away assets or set up an irrevocable trust and yet retain control over those assets. So I would say mid-70s mid is probably the most appropriate time, though I've set up irrevocable trust for people in their late 80s. I mean, people are living well into their their 90s. And oftentimes, it's not an all or nothing scenario. You know, this five-year window or five-year look-back period is not an absolute finish line. If you get three years into the five-year look-back period, you've still received some benefits because you may just have to privately spend for care for two years. Right. And that's an important yeah. point. Of point. It's not all, all or it's not all or nothing. And another piece of that we also come across with clients is some of the misconceptions that we don't have this on your list is it's not when you created the, the, the trust it's when you it's fund when it. you fund the assets and True. sometimes we'll see some clients that have this and they move part of the assets in um, and they may think that they can remaining assets in later and still have the five-year look back rule and that's not the not correct the case. it's when the assets go into the trust and, and some of those clients are taking baby steps right they they set up the trust and maybe for control reasons, they mm -hmm. they leave a fair amount of assets outside of the trust. So obviously the, the mantra is earlier and more. Right. So at least from a, you know, from a planning planning standpoint, which yep. kind of leads to the last misconception. We covered it a little, a little bit. But if I place my assets in an irrevocable trust, I will have absolutely no control over them. I mean, that's where I find that most clients object to this planning is that they're so afraid that they're going to lose control yeah. of their assets that they don't do this planning. Yeah, or that they don't want to involve their their children in their financial affairs. And, uh, and I, I get it. But when they understand how these trusts work and the different features that can be put in place, they tend to be more comfortable about it. So with an irrevocable trust, you, you do essentially give up some control over your assets, but, but not total control. These trusts typically, if you're transferring to an irrevocable trust, ordinarily the trust will contain language that will provide the, the creator of the trust, the client, with the absolute right to reside there for as long as they live or for as long as they choose. That also allows them to retain any property tax exemptions, which is always a concern as well. We typically give the uh, client the ability to change trustees. So they have the ability to substitute trustees. So if they have selected poorly amongst the kids, right. they, they are able to swap out one trustee for another. So that uh, always serves them well. Usually these trusts are set up as income only trusts so that any of the income generated by the assets in the trust will come back out to the settlers or the clients in this case. So 
all they're really doing is giving up the ability to sort of reach into this trust and pull out principal. And the principal can be accessed, but it's ordinarily accessed through the, the children. So that if we have two children serving as co-trustees, they're able to then pass assets to one another or to any of their siblings or, for that matter, the, the client's grandchildren. And then those assets are in, intended to be passed back to the, the clients. And we also uh, reserve the right on the part of the client to change the beneficiaries. So if there's ever falling out with any of the, the family members that are named in the, the document, of course, the client can then change the beneficiaries and they can reallocate their their assets on their death amongst any of the other children. So there are enough checks and balances where, you know, in all, all the years I've been doing this, I've yet to have any children sort of, you know, go rogue, as I like to say, and uh, violate mom and dad's trust at all. So, all right, but that's important. People think they do this, that they've given up total absolute control which they over don't. decisions and assets. And like you said, that, you know, that, that they don't, that there is some type of flexibility built, there is. You know, built into this. Yep. So these are all great topics, and we've only touched on a few of them. Is there anything you'd like to mention as far as closing that we may not have covered? No, I, I think it, it's certainly worth while sitting down, you know, when I meet with clients now, clients will still come in, they're talking about wills or revocable trust to avoid probate. And more often than not, the conversation will steer towards, you know, asset protection, because I hear the statement time and time again, that I don't want to, you know, lose all of my assets, or I don't want the nursing home or the state to take my my home. So, you know, a lot of people have these same concerns. And certainly, there's the opportunity to plan to protect your assets. So it just requires some advanced planning and setting aside, aside some time to meet with an attorney, whether it's me or anyone else, to discuss these issues. And I think you'll feel comfortable setting up a, a plan, including an irrevocable trust. Great. Thanks, Kevin, for all your ideas and su suggestions. And you know, I would reiterate again, you know, the earlier that you do some planning, the better. But even if you, you know, do see some areas where you are starting to have some issues with yourself or with your parents, you know, don't think it's too late and come in and, you know, talk to an estate attorney and see what can, you know, can be done. So thank you again for, uh, for being with us You're on, on the podcast. We will post the podcast with all of Kevin's information uh, on our website as soon as the podcast is ready at hellowealthmanagement.com or feel free to contact Kevin Condon at 631-694-2626 or reach out to him at uh, kcondon at ghn, Grenier, Nolan, Humes, Law Group com. Hey guys, that was fantastic. Larry, thank you so much for having the podcast today and absolutely for having Kevin as your guest. Thank you, guys. Great. Thanks. Eric. Thanks. Thank you, audience, for listening to today's podcast with Larry Heller and his guest, Kevin. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Larry comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. It also makes this so much easier to share with your friends and family. And I know today's subject, especially, is something you're going to want to share with folks. So for everyone at Heller Wealth Management, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. We'll see you next time.